If it's Thursday, new reporting that the U.S. is ramping up its military presence on the island of Taiwan in a potential showdown with China as U.S. officials try to deter Beijing from a wartime escalation. Plus, federal investigators released their initial findings on that toxic train derailment as Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg heads to East Palestine, Ohio, to defend the administration's handling of the disaster cleanup. And a war abroad meets politics at home. President Biden is criticized by Republicans for prioritizing U.S. foreign policy over domestic issues as he returns from a historic wartime visit to Eastern Europe. Happy Thursday. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I am Chuck Todd reporting in Washington, where the Biden administration is facing a potentially dangerous escalation in tensions with Beijing. Early this morning, the Wall Street Journal reported that the United States is planning to deploy an additional 100 to 200 troops to Taiwan. It's a sharp increase from the roughly 30 troops on the island just a year ago. These are military trainers, folks, for what it's worth. NBC News has not been able to confirm the specifics of the Wall Street Journal story. But the Pentagon is not denying it or waving reporters off. And a DOD spokesperson does tell NBC News this. We don't have a comment on specific operations, engagements, or training. But I would highlight that our support for and defensive relationship with Taiwan remains aligned against the current threat posed by the People's Republic of China. Our commitment to Taiwan is rock solid and c- contributes to the maintenance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and within the region. U.S. Special Forces have been training troops in Taiwan on a rotational basis. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the move to send additional troops is part of U.S. efforts to bolster its training program in Taiwan amid fears that China could potentially eventually invade. And it comes as just yesterday, top U.S. officials, including Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer, met with top Taiwanese officials for an annual security dialogue. And according to Taiwanese media, the delegations met for about seven hours. That's not a meeting, folks. That's a summit. But neither the U.S. nor Taiwan issued a statement about that closed-door meeting. Now, these meetings between Washington and Taipei are not just happening in the United States. We've had multiple U.S. delegations traveling to Taiwan just in the last week, including the Pentagon's top China official, a bipartisan congressional delegation, and a secret trip by the chair of the new House Select Committee on China, Congressman Mike Gallagher, who said that his biggest takeaway from his meetings was the urgency in which the U.S. needs to deliver weapons to Taiwan. I just got back from a four-day trip to Taiwan, and I can tell you that the time to arm Taiwan to the teeth was yesterday. Increasingly, we're seeing a strategic convergence between Russia and China, who, though they may be strange bedfellows, have a shared interest in undermining America and waging Cold War against the West. So the tensions with China over Taiwan come as the Biden administration is renewing its concern that China may send lethal military assistance to Russia to help and its war against Ukraine. Now, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the Biden administration is now considering releasing the intelligence to prove what it's been saying. NBC News has not yet confirmed that reporting. And after canceling his trip to Beijing in response to the Chinese spy balloon, the Secretary of State Antony Blinken said today that he recently confronted his Chinese counterpart about assisting Russia during a meeting in Munich. In the meeting that I had with um, the senior Chinese foreign policy official, 
Wang Yi in Munich, uh, I uh, again directly uh, told him this concern, uh, what we were seeing, and reminded him of the many conversations between President Biden and President Xi, and reminded him that this would be a serious problem in the relationship. I'm uh, um, hopeful, but in a very clear-eyed way, that China will get that message because it's not only coming from us, it's coming from many other countries who do not want to see China aiding and abetting in a material way Russia's war effort in Ukraine. Folks, the fallout from any of these developments would be notable in isolation, sending more troops to Taiwan, multiple delegations visiting there, secret diplomatic meetings here in Washington, and warnings about China giving Russia lethal aid. What are we here to make of the fact that they're all happening at the same time? I'm joined now by Nancy Youssef, one of the Wall Street Journal reporters who broke the story about the expansion of American military presence in Taiwan. And also with me is Ivan Kanapathy. He's a former China director for the National Security Council. He's now a senior associate and the Freeman Chair in Asian Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, our friends at CSIS. Uh, good to see you. Thank you, Ivan. Nancy, let me start with your reporting. I find it fascinating. Trust me, we've been chasing your reporting all day. Um, um, the, the, U, the official U.S. response seems to be nervous about admitting what we're doing in Taiwan. That's right, and they frequently are. They don't want to talk about their troop presence because they're always trying to figure out what is the highest level of support that they can offer the Taiwanese without agitating relations with China. And so uh, any details on the number of troops they have, the kind of training they're doing, their efforts to really bolster Taiwan's defense mm -hmm. is always sort of um, kept behind closed doors, and it's very hard to get specifics. At the same time, there's saying that this policy is designed to be a deterrent. And so I think it's a balance between saying we want to deter China, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we, want, we don't want to say specifically how we're doing that. For folks of a certain age, when they hear military trainers, that's just, oh, that's how Vietnam started. I mean, I hate mm -hmm. to simplify it that way. What are these military trainers doing? So I actually think it's worth thinking about it more like Ukraine, which is one of the lessons that the U.S. took from Ukraine is that um, from 2014 until the invasion nearly a year ago, the U.S. was training mm -hmm. uh, Ukrainian fighters so that they could defend their country in the event of, an, of a fight, of an invasion, which of course subsequently happened. And so the idea from the U.S. military perspective is not to have trainers that are such that they're prepared to fight or confront China should they try to enter Taiwan, but rather to have the uh, forces in place, the skills in place for local forces should they face an invasion. Remember, there's no Poland uh, for Taiwan, right. so if there's an invasion, everything they have has to be there on the island ready to go. I guess the only version of Poland is Japan, the Philippines, and Australia, and us as the conduit, I guess. Well, and then ships would have to right. come in, and we saw an April, after Speaker Pelosi's right. visit an effort to sort of um, see by the Chinese whether they could slow down some of those ships coming to an island. Ivan, I want you to take a stab at the sort of the Essentially, we're asking a, a question of what do we make of all this happening this week? Is it just weird coincidence or are things ramping up? So I think, you know, if you want to say this week, it's coincidence. But mm -hmm. potentially, if you say, you know, this season or these months or, you know, at this point in history, yeah. and it's not coincidence, it's a, it's, a, it's a reaction to a more assertive and aggressive uh, China. And, you know, for years, Chuck, we've sold weapons, you know, to Taiwan. A lot of that is publicly disclosed, almost yeah. all of it. Uh, and you've seen in recent years that that's ramped up significantly. And so it kind of only makes now sense. Now we're going to sell them weapons with our own money. Right? That's, well, we're giving them these we might. loans. We might. We're thinking about giving them massive loans we to essentially buy weapons from And us. potentially yeah. grants at yeah. some point. Um, but it grants only makes sense that for the, just never having to pay back the money. Right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. 
but, but it makes sense that the training side, it's not just the equipment, the training side needs to also ramp up to match, you're right, I mean, to create a capability. Answer Mike Gallagher there. He feels like we need to arm them yesterday. What does that mean? What are they missing? What, give me some specifics here. So I agree with Congressman Gallagher very much. Taiwan has, I think, for a long time focused on instruments of capabilities and platforms that are probably not best attuned for an island defense mission. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the lessons that come from Ukraine, but really predating Ukraine, the United States had already announced, for example, you know, these terms that are now familiar to all of us, like stingers and yeah. javelins and HIMARS, those are all on the rolls, to mm -hmm. ready to go to Taiwan until Ukraine happened, which gotcha. has slowed it down. How much is that, I mean, I'm curious, Nancy, are you, you hearing this in the Pentagon, are we stretched resource-wise right now? Well, certainly what we've seen is a $30 billion worth of um, military equipment going to Ukraine. Some of that was um, equipment and weapons that was intended for other countries, including Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And we haven't seen a subsequent ramp up of defense contracting. And so what we've seen is a depletion of stockpiles and not as an aggressive effort to resupply those and, and build new weaponry. And so, yes, I think um, there is a feeling that stockpiles are being stretched. Mm -hmm. um, this was started as something that was intended to be temporary, that this when people right. believe the word would be short. And as that's gone on, we haven't seen the subsequent adjustment to resupply that I think some would like to see, particularly when it comes to ammunition. Ivan, I want to talk about the political situation on the island of Taiwan. What, what ha I mean, is China given up on the idea of persuasion? Uh, China has not given up on the idea of persuasion, but I think that window mm -hmm. is closing. I think we're, you know, within a few years of China coming to that conclusion. And, and quite frankly, it's because China's own actions are quite counterproductive to the persuasion. Um, they don't see it that way, and I don't think they, in their system, can acknowledge it, mm -hmm. but that's what's happening. Jim. And what about indep the independence movement on the island? Is that, like, that seems to ebb and flow, too. Yeah, the independence movement on the island definitely exists, but it's not by any stretch uh, a significant enough that it would drive the Taiwanese people to vote or put people in power, mm -hmm. they're going to move, you know, in significantly in that direction. I want to talk about the declassifying of this intelligence that the U.S. is talking about. Because that's, look, when I had Secretary of State on that Sunday, it's sort of like, okay, we've been accusing the Chinese of, help, of helping the Russians all along. What's different this time? Do you get a sense of what's different? Sure. So up until this week, the aid was in the form of um, buying Russian gas, mm -hmm. um, providing dual-use technologies in some cases. And what was significant is what the Secretary said on Sunday shows, including yours, was mm -hmm. that the, the Chinese were looking at lethal aid, which is a very, very different... But he didn't say it was weapons. Right. It was it was an interesting. So what what fall, what is lethal aid that isn't weaponry? Ammunition, mm -hmm. which uh, you know goes very quickly in, in war. And remember mm -hmm. that the Chinese and Russians both have compatible um, systems in some cases, such that potentially the Chinese mm -hmm. could provide ammunition with none of their fingerprints on it. And for the U.S., uh, the providing of those um, weapons could change the war as um, both sides are expecting a ramp up of of um, fighting in Ukraine uh, ahead of the uh, ahead of the spring. Ivan, I understand the geopolitical reasons for China to help Russia. Are they really going to give them? I mean, it feels like this is more of a rhetorical uh, back and forth with the West rather than a serious effort. But, you know, maybe I'm underrating it. So I think this is a key decision point, And the administration sees this as a key decision point for China and is trying very hard to influence that decision. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's some intelligence suggesting that they're considering it. 
And therefore, you know, based on, I think just like us, when we look at the Ukraine war, mm -hmm. is this a pivotal moment where, you know, a little extra help to Russia helps push them over? Mm -hmm. And, you know, from China's perspective, the greater strategic picture can swing quite significantly. Is there another country that could persuade China to back off that isn't the United States? I don't think there is. Yeah, they, they just, they, it's all about creating, and what, what is a real consequence that we could level against them that we would be willing to do if they did this? I think what we'll see initially is sort of a broadening and deepening of our sanctions programs. We're going to see some sanctions tomorrow, Chuck. Do you think I, the Europeans will join us? Uh, the Europeans are definitely going to join us tomorrow. On the Russian stuff, but on what about Russian on the Chinese stuff. side? Uh, that remains to be seen. That would be the hard part. Ivan and Nancy, thank you both for coming in. Nancy, terrific reporting. Like I said, we've been chasing you all day. Thank you. All right. Thanks, uh, let me now bring in Congressman Dusty Johnson. He's a Republican from South Dakota, and he's a member of that House Select Committee on China. Congressman, uh, it's, good to, it's good to hear from you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Let me start with, um, we heard from Mike Gallagher, the chair of the committee that you're on, can't get uh, weapons there fast enough. What does that look like, and what is the balance between helping Ukraine and helping Taiwan that you'd like to see? Well, your other guests were right about a depletion of the stockpile. So I do think we want to be strategic and forward-looking. Uh, you know, Churchill, I think, called the United States the arsenal of democracy, and clearly that is still true. But we do need to, uh, to arm the Taiwanese. Uh, this uh, The threat from the Chinese Communist Party is only growing. We have seen their pattern of aggression get, I think, more provocative. And so this is something the select committee is going to be spending a lot of time discussing. Um, there's a lot of hesitance to call this a Cold War. So what would you call it with China? Well, I would call it a Cold War. I know, listen, that is not an official view on the select committee. Yeah. Some of my colleagues disagree with that. But Chuck, I think we've been in a Cold War for 10 or 15 years. But it's been a one-sided Cold War. The Americans have largely been sleepwalking through these patterns of aggression. Uh, being nice to China, asking them pretty please, and being concerned about agitating them mm -hmm. has not worked. It hasn't helped the Uyghurs. It hasn't helped to slow yeah. uh, Chinese efforts to destabilize our country and others. I think the time has come to be honest with the American people that the Chinese Communist Party is absolutely an adversary of our nation. What kind of red line do you think we should create here if China provides lethal, essentially, ammunition to the Russians? I think it is a big, big problem. It is time for Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party to pick a side. They have tried to act like they're neutral. They're clearly not. But I think we need to amp up the uh, global pressure on them. They can, uh, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So it wouldn't surprise any of us if uh, Xi Jinping and Putin, both tyrannical dictators, started doing even more to help one another. But uh, I think there need to be serious sanction and other economic uh, yeah. accountability mechanisms if they do that. What could be done that would make China flinch? Well, in the short term, I don't know. But in the long term, we need a strategic, a smart decoupling uh, between what we buy and sell with the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, 
clearly it's not a strategic problem if we're buying cheap T-shirts from China. Mm-hmm. I think it is a problem if there are life-saving pharmaceuticals that we are only getting from China. Mm-hmm. I think it's a problem that we have allowed China to gain entirely too much control over our food supply. Food security is national security. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, by the way, has increased their holdings of foreign farmland by a thousand percent in recent years. This is not just an accident. It is deliberate. Yeah. And I think we need yeah. to do a better job. You know, I was, look, I was looking into that. I, I understand it's increased by a thousand percent. They still hold Canada is by far the country that owns more American farmland than the Chinese do. Uh, now, obviously, oh, Canada. My concern isn't just American farmland. You're right, Chuck. The cattle are still largely in the barn with regard to the Chinese buying American farmland. But they have massive holdings Mm. in Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, South America. Those are things that need to be be concerning to all freedom-loving people. Let me ask you about Africa because we're going to get another test vote today. And it's, you know, maybe I'm one of the few that that sort of weird – junkies on this. There's going to be this U.N. vote, a resolution about the one-year anniversary of the war. And look, we know we can have a debate about the effectiveness of the United Nations, but it certainly is a temperature check on whose whose side are you on. And a lot of these African countries have been staying neutral. What does the United States need to do to get some of these African countries who, I mean, in many ways, Russia's, Russia and China are paying them more attention than the United States is, which may explain the neutrality. Americans have not paid enough attention to exactly the dynamics you're talking about. We have in recent years, I think, kind of pulled back a little bit into ourselves. Mm-hmm. We haven't cared as much about uh, you know, South America and Africa in particular as we used to. China has been excited to fill that void, and it's a real problem. We know that there are probably as many African governments that feel a connection with, a loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party as feel a connection with our country. That's a problem. We know that uh, South America is a much bigger trading partner Mm -hmm. collectively with China than it is with the United States. We cannot go it alone. We've got to continue to build a coalition of freedom-loving people. Tell me about the conversation you can have with your constituents. Because in the the Midwest in particular, I've noticed a growing, you look at the polling, it's not just on on ideology, but sort of in the Midwest, there's there's a, I don't want to call it isolationism in general, but sort of like, okay, But what about here? Um, How do you make the case that, hey, funding the war in Ukraine, defending Taiwan is in your best interest, constituent X from Pierre, South Dakota? I start by reminding them that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are every bit as dictatorial and tyrannical as any of the famous, uh, famous villains of the 20th century. And I think when you try, when you put it, when you when you characterize it like that, remind them that America was made less safe by the actions of those 20th uh, 20th century villains. They their eyes are opened a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want American security and safety. If we want a safe America, America cannot go it alone. Uh, I had Mike McFall on my podcast today and, and he was wondering, can you make a transactional argument? Can you basically make the argument? Look. It's cheaper today to help Ukraine win this war than to fight Putin down the road. I think you can make that argument, but to me, there's even a broader argument. That Mm -hmm. is, if you believe in American exceptionalism, and I do, if you think that for 246 years, America has overwhelmingly been a force for good, and I do, then that means we gotta be on the side of the good guys. It means that we don't let dictators take land uh, with force. 
There is a rules-based international system that was largely set up by America in the wake of World War II. It's worked a lot better than we sometimes give it credit for. Walking away from all of that, just to go back to the apathy of uh, you know uh, daily life, is not going to make us safer one gosh darn bit. Now, North America is not the island some people think it is. Congressman Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota, really appreciate you, uh, appreciate you coming on, sharing your perspective with us. Good to see you. Still ahead, as we talk about concerns of China arming Russia, Ukraine is getting a potential assist from a bipartisan group of lawmakers on the Hill that is pushing to see us send fighter jets to Kyiv ASAP. We're going to talk to the member of Congress leading that effort next. Plus, new answers on the possible cause of that train derailment in Ohio and new questions about the extent of the fallout here in Washington over the response. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Vladimir Putin said today he intends to strengthen Russia's nuclear forces days after he announced that Russia was suspending its participation in the last nuclear treaty between the United States and Moscow. President Biden has called that decision a big mistake, and it comes as the president just pledged to send Ukraine another half billion dollars in military aid. President Zelensky, meanwhile, is pushing U.S. and its allies to send them fighter jets. It's a request the White House has so far resisted, and it's also a request that Ukraine's been making for months. Now, however, there's a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers urging the administration to reconsider and to send Ukraine U.S. jets as soon as possible. The effort was spearheaded by Congressman Jared Gold. He's a Democrat from Maine, and he joins me now. So, Congressman, let me start with, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed this pattern better than anybody else, which is we'll say no until the last minute when we say yes. So I assume we're going to send these fighter jets at some point, and I assume your fear is we're going to send them too late. That's exactly right, Chuck. Uh, that has been a pattern uh, that I recognize in many of my colleagues who are on the Armed Services Committee, many of us veterans ourselves, mostly of the, of the post-9-11 uh, you know, era. And, uh, you know, our, we saw this early on. Uh, where we were pushing for uh, new air uh, defense capabilities mm -hmm. uh, to be, um, and, and it took too long. Uh, same uh, as well with the high Mars long range uh, precision fires. Um, always a little bit behind. I think you're right. We will get to yes, uh, but we should have probably started this process already. Uh, some people have raised concerns about training. Well, right. last September, many of us called on the administration to start training in F-16 or fourth generation aircraft. Uh, and, and of course, that hasn't that hasn't even begun. So the, the time to start this process is right now. You know, and that gets to something that I've been hearing more and more. And it hasn't mattered whether person, you know, their political persuasion. This is left and right. If you if you've been focused on this issue, which is. All of the training on, on American weapon systems, a lot of people were calling for this before the start of the war, and it didn't happen. Why do you think there was so much hesitance there? I'm not going to speak to why, Chuck, other than to reiterate uh, one point that I wanted to make, which is that once America identifies a national interest and decides to act, we should act decisively to achieve the best outcome that we can. And uh, in this case, acting decisively means the timely delivery of that battlefield capabilities, right. either in the form of supplies that are necessary to sustain the fight. Yes, the basics like bullets, uh, you know, water, these things that we all know uh, troops on the ground need uh, in, in training uh, the fighters, 
But then lastly, we got to deliver in a very timely manner, new advanced technologies that can help them uh, advance the fight on the battlefield. And, and, and of course, today we're talking about the F-16. I, you know, it does well, seem, well, let me ask you this, the, the mindset in the administration, and I feel like I hear it even at the Pentagon, and it, and it, it doesn't, I don't want to say it's, it, which is, they want to give Ukraine enough to defend themselves. But they stop short of saying we're going to give them enough to win this war. Why do you think that is? I think it's fear of crossing some kind of red line that uh, may not even exist. It has not been articulated, certainly, uh, by the other side, Chuck. Uh, look, look at just just let's just look at what's gone on in the last year. Uh, the battlefield is littered with Russian armored vehicles, tanks, troop carriers. How many casualties have they suffered? Many at the hands of American and Western supplied weaponry from stingers and javelins. Uh, to high Mars and other things. If, if there was going to be some kind of red uh, line to be crossed, one would have thought we had already gotten there. Now, a, a key point about F-16s, these are fourth-generation fighters that have been around for decades. Right. Uh, as opposed to high Mars or uh, Abrams tanks, which are more you know, recent fifth-generation uh, technologies, uh, and we have said yes to those, but not to uh, an older uh, fourth-generation uh, aircraft, which we have given to many, uh, many other allies uh, around the world. Uh, I'm curious, you, you, uh, you have a, a constituency that's more rural, and in general, rural populations in this country have been less supportive of the war, in, uh, of sort of these, uh, supporting the war in Ukraine these days. Um, the focus, hey, how about focusing here at home? What's your case to your constituents? What do you tell your constituents? And let me ask you this, what would you tell President Biden about the patience of the American public on this war? Well, I've seen uh, a, a strong showing of support in my district for, for supporting Ukraine. Uh, driving around Maine's very rural, you're, you're correct about that, very rural second district. I, I was surprised early on the number of Ukrainian flags I saw flying around my district. Um, you know, I, I, I think it has something to do with, with our with being a rural community. So I, I don't know if you have data that supports. Uh, you know. Well, the polling data is saying one thing. That's why I was curious if you're running into this similar where I was talking with Congressman Johnson earlier and he, you know, in South Dakota, he's running into that. There's a little bit of the the old isolationist view that that certainly goes hot and cold in this country, um, sometimes no matter the politics. Sure. Dusty's a great guy. I'm glad I'm glad you had him on. I, I work with him often. Um, I, I guess I would say this. There is a clear national interest for the United States of America to arm Ukraine against Russia. Uh, let me remind people uh, of a couple of things. I'll start most recently. Uh, we know of ongoing Russian cyber operations against America. Uh, most recently, we've talked about uh, their efforts to hack into our critical infrastructure from gas pipelines right. to water and power plants. In 2018, 2019, General Nichols, when I was on the Armed Services Committee, uh, the head you know, leader of the American military in Afghanistan made clear that we knew that the Russians were involved in arming the Taliban at a time when we had American advisors on the ground with the Afghan military, uh, putting our troops into harm's way. Uh, and then going back to the Mueller report in 2016, uh, this is a direct quote out of the Mueller report. The Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion from social media disinformation campaigns that were meant to divide Americans against one another mm -hmm. to cyber hacking operations 
directly targeted at U.S. presidential candidates. Now, I, I, before you like or, or before viewers go and think right. that I'm making this political, they found no coordination, no, no, right. you know, evidence of any kind of co- conspiracy between any candidacies for the presidency right. and the Russian government. It doesn't change the fact that they came after our democracy in a very serious way. And there's been little to no repercussions. So make no mistake about it. Russia is not our friend. They are our enemy. In Ukraine, we have an ally who is in, who is in direct com- combat with them right now. Do you think President Biden has been clear enough with the American people about this? I, 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 I defer you know, to, to them to, to give us some feedback on that. I think, he, I think he's made the case several times. Most recently, in the last couple of months, with the State of the Union address, of course, with the invitation to President Zelensky to come before the United States Congress, right. uh, and has made a big push in, in the last couple of weeks as well. Congressman Jared Golden, Democrat from Maine's uh, second district up there. Uh, thanks for coming on, sharing your perspective with us. Good to see you. Hey, thank you. Take care. Up next, a fresh exchange of rocket fire as tensions are escalating between Israelis. Israel's military and Palestinian militants. We're live in Tel Aviv with the very latest. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. A new wave of violence in the Middle East today between Palestinian militant groups and Israeli defense forces. Israel's military says it launched airstrikes in Gaza today, striking uh, what they say is a weapons manufacturing site and a military compound in response to rockets fired by Hamas. Of course, the militant group that does control the Gaza Strip. This exchange of rocket fire comes a day after an Israeli military operation in the West Bank which Israel says was aimed at arresting three suspected militants there. Palestinian officials report 11 Palestinians were killed and more than 100 were injured. Raf Sanchez has been covering the latest escalation here from Tel Aviv. And, and Raf, uh, we've been covering it a little bit. King Abdullah uh, from Jordan was here trying to warn Washington and the West that this is escalating in a very troublesome way. What are you seeing on the ground tonight? Well, Chuck, this is the worst violence in the West Bank we have seen in 20 years since the second intifada, which back in September 2000. And every indication is that it is only going to get worse. This Israeli military raid in Nablus, very unusual in that it took place in broad daylight. And so it led to the situation where you had Israeli special forces confronted by these very large crowds of angry Palestinians throwing rocks, throwing firebombs. As you said, the Israelis felt they needed to carry out this raid in the middle of the day because of an imminent threat from this terrorist group called the Lion's Den, based out of Nablus, the city in the northern occupied West Bank. They caught, or rather they killed, those three senior operatives from the Lion's Den, but they also killed eight other Palestinians, some militants, some civilians. The Palestinian Authority is calling this a massacre. And we heard from the Biden administration that while they understand Israel's legitimate security concerns, Israel's need to carry out counterterrorism operations, they are very concerned by this massive loss of life, by this bloodshed in Nablus. And really, Chuck, we are seeing no signs from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the head of this new far-right government, the most right-wing in Israel's history, that he has any interest in de-escalating right now. He is continuing to take a hard line, and even today giving new powers in the West Bank to one of the most far-right members of his government, Chuck. Rob, I mean, there's some cynical political analysis in Israel that says that once he gets the change in the judiciary that he's looking for, that maybe 
Prime Minister Netanyahu then does try to pull back a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting with Netanyahu. Uh, there can be a feeling sometimes outside of Israel that moments of conflict are good for him, that he gets to be Mr. Security, that he looks strong. But actually, part of the reason he's been so electorally successful in this country is he's seen as the man who keeps young Israeli soldiers, for the most part, out of harm's way. He's managed to avoid major wars right. with Hezbollah, with Iran so far. So that's seen as, as one of his electoral calling cards. But as you say, he is under immense pressure right now over this very controversial plan to weaken Israel's judiciary. He says it's a badly needed set of reforms to curb activist judges. Right. But his critics, who've been out on the streets in their tens of thousands, say it could fatally undermine Israeli democracy. Rob, how, how noticeable are the protests to you? Very. Here mm -hmm. in Tel Aviv, you know, almost all of liberal Israel, it seems, are right. out no. en masse on the streets. You know, everybody, everybody knows seems to be out here. I kind of would compare the reaction in Tel Aviv, the sort of liberal capital of Israel, right. as opposed to Jerusalem, the actual capital, as well as right. the conservative capital. It's a little like the feeling in New York after Donald Trump won. People just absolutely in shock, not only that Netanyahu is back, but at the head of this very, very right-wing government, Chuck. Interesting uh, comparison there, Ralph Sanchez. Well done reporting for us in Tel Aviv. Raf, thank you. Up next, three weeks after that toxic train derailment in Ohio, the first report from federal investigators about the crash itself. And the first visit from the Secretary of Transportation, who's been facing lots of questions on the federal response. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. The National Transportation Safety Board today released its first findings. Uh, in their investigation of the cause of the derailment of a train that carried toxic chemicals, which of course derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, three weeks ago. This preliminary report revealed that the derailment could be traced to an overheated wheel bearing that was far above the temperature threshold needed to trigger the train to stop. Norfolk Southern has not publicly responded to the findings. This report comes as the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, paid his first visit to East Palestine today. His uh, since the derailment, he recommitted to holding Norfolk Southern accountable for the disaster. Norfolk Southern is running trains on this track, uh, and as long as anybody is feeling the impacts of this disaster, Norfolk Southern has to be there. Not just this year, not just when all the press are here, but every single day. But also, Norfolk Southern and the other freight rail companies need to stop fighting us. Experts say the air and water are safe, but some residents are still concerned about health impacts of the chemicals that were released by the crash and the subsequent fire. Jesse Kirsch, is, who is on the ground for us here at NBC News, is in East Palestine today, and Jesse was there for the visit. Uh, it's been interesting to see the Secretary of Transportation. He seemed a little bit uh, chagrined that he, that he didn't get there sooner. He explained why, but he seemed to not like the fact that he had to explain why he wasn't there sooner. Yeah, and Chuck, he was asked about this again today. Essentially, he's framing it as trying to balance the needs of investigators up against trying to express his support in person. Here's part of his exchange with our Ron Allen. Records and spoken to the people. Was it a mistake not to come here sooner? You know, what I tried to do was balance two things. My desire to be involved and engaged and on the ground, which is uh, uh, how I am uh, generally wired to act, and my desire to follow the norm of transportation secretaries 
allowing NTSB to really uh, lead the initial stages of the public-facing work. I'll do some thinking about uh, whether I got that balance right. Uh, but I think the most important thing is, first of all, making sure that the residents here have what they need. So, Chuck, that's the political side of this. Someone who's trying to keep this very much not political is the chair of the NTSB. And at the press conference earlier, they went through the details of this preliminary report. You talked about that temperature concern. So what we're looking at is three different sensors across a roughly 30-mile stretch leading up to the derailment in which the temperature was tracked of this suspect wheel bearing. First, it was seen at 38 degrees above the air temperature, then 103 degrees above the air temperature, and finally 253 degrees above the air temperature. It was only that final sensor which triggered an audible alert, alerting the crew. According to NTSB officials today, there was no warning to the crew prior to that. And the NTSB is making clear, based on its findings so far, the crew followed procedure and was doing what it was supposed to be doing. But there's a question as to whether or not that procedure needs to change. And the NTSB says that is something that it will be looking into, clarifying that mm -hmm. the railroads themselves set that standard of when they get a trigger for an alert based on a critical temperature. So the question is out there, was that alert level too high for what would have been necessary to possibly prevent this? That's just one of several questions still unanswered in this community. Jesse, I just want to say, I think you did a terrific job explaining that. That was not an easy thing to explain. Um, the track itself, is this it was was this uh, early warning system? Is it something that Norfolk Southern has in place, or does the track itself have it? And it's something the government keeps track of. So, the a former uh, member of the NTSB board, I believe, a former chair, was on with Chris Jansen on MSNBC earlier and was talking about how the railroads manage the the tracks themselves so uh, best we can understand from the ntsb press conference today chuck the railroad uh, is responsible for setting that standard so uh, they are saying that this is something that is railroad procedure yeah. and that's that's how they've been uh, putting it so far and again uh, you know forgetting pointing the finger at the railroad perhaps sure. really very much trying to make this about making recommendations moving forward that's ntsb's role in this but obviously you have uh, the biden administration right. talking about trying to uh, tighten reforms tighten the safety measurements and you have that up against the trump administration or the former i should say former president trump and mm -hmm. uh defense of his administration partially right. which has been uh, had the finger pointed at it by the biden white house uh making the right. posing the question of why we haven't seen top level cabinet level officials right. here sooner than we have i tell you it's the top part of that uh response there i don't know how you explain how the railroad company gets to set its own, gets to regulate itself. I think we've all learned there is no such thing as any industry that knows how to regulate itself. Jesse Kirsch uh, in East Palestine, Ohio for us. Jesse, thank you. Uh, by the way, we accidentally showed you some Tesla video a moment ago because we had it ready to roll for our next story because we have an update on Elon Musk's clash with the state of California. Because despite the Tesla CEO moving the company's headquarters out of Silicon Valley to Texas after lambasting California's COVID policies as, quote, fascist, Musk is having to go back to California. Why? The reason appears to be about talent. Musk is opening up a new headquarters specifically for engineers in Palo Alto. He toured the new facility with California Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday. And while Tesla's head corporate headquarters will technically remain in Austin, 
The new expansion will drive much of the company's research, development, and AI with plans to fast-track self-driving vehicles. All of that is going to be in California now. The move also puts Musk closer to Twitter headquarters, which he purchased last year. Coming up, is Donald Trump taking a page from the Bill Clinton 1992 presidential campaign playbook? We'll explain that one after this. Welcome back. This week in politics has been something of a split screen between President Biden and former President Trump and between foreign and domestic policy. Biden kicked off the week with a surprise visit to wartime Kiev, loudly reaffirming U.S. support for Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. The White House clearly welcomed the commander-in-chief moment, especially for a president who's faced questions about his age and stamina. That trip to Kiev was something that would have tired anybody out. Meanwhile, back at home, the president's potential 2024 opponents I've been trying to use the moment to accuse Biden of abandoning Americans facing uh, problems here at home. Donald Trump specifically focusing on what happened in East Palestine, Ohio. In fact, Donald Trump made his really one of his first in-person appearances that wasn't a rally in East Palestine, Ohio earlier this week, taking the opportunity to criticize the administration's foreign aid. I sincerely hope that when your representatives and all of the politicians get here, including Biden, they get back from touring Ukraine, that he's got some money left over. So joining me now is our panel, Tamara Keith, uh, NPR White House correspondent and host of the NPR Politics Podcast, Boston Globe columnist Kimberly Atkins-Store. She's also an NBC News contributor, Republican strategist Doug High. You know, Tamara, you go back to 1991, and we had a president, George H.W. Bush, flying high up to the end of the Cold War. Uh, U.S. military might in the Middle East, easily pushing back uh, Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And Democrats were running around the country going, hey, what's going on here? And it, and it worked. He had this, everybody trusted Bush more on foreign policy, and it didn't matter. Clinton was focused on the economy. Domestic politics usually does trump this stuff. Oh, absolutely, it does. In this case, I think President Biden needed to go to Ukraine for the domestic politics, for the domestic politics of actually maintaining support mm -hmm. for the war in Ukraine. Um, he has been going around the country a lot, and I think yeah. we're going to see a lot more of it, uh, touting what he has accomplished and, and right. what Congress passed. And, you know, he says the next two years are about implementation. But former President Trump was all about this split screen, right. it, it, so much so that he put out on Truth Social a video of himself in Palestine and, and or himself getting ready to go mm -hmm. to Palestine and Joe Biden uh, coming back from uh, from. Uh, Poland. Uh, so he wants that image. He wants that split screen. And it is remarkable how much the Republican narrative and pushback on President Biden's yeah. trip has been. But what about America? I, I've been fascinated by it. And Kimberly, it's not like the White House isn't sensitive to this. Look, I was somewhat critical. The only thing I was critical about the State of the Union was the lack of making the case for Ukraine. That here you had 28 million people. You know, you need to make a better case to the American public as why Ukraine matters to you in your life. Uh, but they focused all domestic because they're aware Americans care about themselves before anybody, anything in Ukraine or Taiwan. 
combination of the fact that they're aware that that's what Americans care about, and also that Joe Biden is a very different person from George H.W. Bush, right? George, Joe Biden has always been, you know, the guy from Scranton who's talking to real Americans about their real problems. He's not like someone who doesn't know how to use a scanner at a grocery store. So I think it's the different premise that is set up here. Which people are going to already flood you with. You know, that wasn't really the case. <laughs> you know what back. I mean. I know what we're, you ta- we're talking about political messaging yes, here. Yes. Uh, and, and so, but, you know, th- it was an opportunity that was missed by the Biden administration not to have a face in Palestine, yes. given what's going on. The fact that they let Trump beat them there was a big mistake that they should not have made. But at the same time, I don't think voters see Joe Biden yeah. as somebody who's been absent from America. You know, Doug, it is fascinating to me. Like, I, re- I remember George H.W. Bush was at a G7 meeting in Rome and mm-hmm. Democrats were passing on T-shirts. George H.W. went to Rome and all I got was his T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and and it also sort of reinforced the idea that Democrats care more about domestic policy mm-hmm. than they did foreign policy. Um, it's weirder to see Republicans play this card. I'll be honest with you, because yeah. normally this is the party of a bit hawkishness. Uh, well, and Not the, parties, anymore, the party's changed yeah. a, a lot recently. And for the, for the Biden administration, this should be the definition of being able to walk and chew gum at the same time and lead, living up to that core Biden promised that we're going to be competent professionals. So if we had seen Pete there um, as Secretary Pete on the ground early, if we had seen Michael Regan there earlier, um, then that gives Biden a bit more flexibility. Um, and, and you take away some of that split screen that we'd seen there. And so Biden will go eventually, and then it will be too late. And mm-hmm. I, I will say in the context of the only time I ever gave any advice to the um, Trump campaign was in 2015. And I said, if Donald Trump is the first person, first politician to go to Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. he resets this race. Yeah. And Trump's visit was was good politics. I would say, in, in matters of consistency, yeah. then also go to Flint, Michigan. Also go to Jackson, Mississippi. Put put yourself on the ground everywhere. Look, and I've gone back. I it drives me nuts that Jackson, Mississippi, isn't a bigger priority for the Biden administration. Yeah. I don't understand why they have not grabbed Jackson the way they grabbed Flint as a campaign issue. Yeah, I, I wonder that too, especially knowing who the base, their base is, who they need to if coalesce you look around at them it again. Totally politically, you could look at it through that lens too, right? It just, it's a weird. And Trump and JD Vance get it because they well, specifically said the quiet part out loud, our voters. Our voters, right, which is why they're not in Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the irony right. here. You expected the Biden White House to be Jackson and East Palestine. Yeah, you really did expect that. I mean, especially given the messaging around what's going on with East Palestine. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't, that is another missing look. At the same time, we need to be clear here, and the Biden administration mm-hmm. is trying to be clear here, that what happened in East Palestine is in part because of yeah. a regulatory yeah. blunder by the previous administration. But at the same time, Pete Buttigieg did not undo the things that Trump has done yeah. yet w- with respect to those regulations. You know, the moment also was a reminder, Tamara, as there's a lot of reporters, a lot of us are, are chasing this narrative, Trump's in, Trump doesn't have the same grip on the party. And I see these stories, and I feel like... I, we, we, we keep rewriting this narrative, rewriting this narrative. And then you watch this moment in East Palestine, you're like, you sure? Mm-hmm. It, <laughs> I mean. it, it, was, it was very much the kind of event that President Trump mm-hmm. would have held, right down to the Big Macs. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very much as if he uh, were still president. Mm-hmm. He flew in with the big plane. He delivered the water. DeSantis was, wouldn't have was, that moment. He wouldn't know how to do that moment, would he? Well, he wouldn't have his own plane to fly in. And I think that is part of what uh, former President Trump was doing, is reminding everyone what a Trump presidency could look like, which is, you know, you got something? I'll fly in. I'll bring my branded water. But DeSantis also plays a different game than Donald Trump. Yes. He's very clear and very specific and methodical on what culture moments he picks, DeSantis mm-hmm. does. 
But when times of crisis come, as we saw with the hurricane, he's sending a message to his state that he represents all voters in the state and more nationally to independent voters. I can also be an adult and govern. That's not what Donald Trump was doing. Donald Trump was seizing a political moment. Uh, DeSantis acts very differently in that regard. I want to pivot to immigration because we're seeing a weird moment here, Kimberly. The left is angry at Biden's new policies. And Jim Jordan is kind of saying, oh, maybe it kind of works. It's kind of working. Um, is that a political problem for the Biden White House or a good outcome for the Biden White House? Well, it certainly opens the door for criticism uh, from both sides. But at the same time, I think the bigger issue here is you have this Republican Congress that mm -hmm. has come in and they set that as one of their first orders of business. And they can't even among themselves get a bill passed. So listen. Immigration is one of the most difficult things to tackle on a policy right. basis. I'm not saying that any of this is easy. But when it comes to the politics and messaging, mm -hmm. that seemed like a slam dunk that the Republicans missed. Tamara, how, how's the White House handling the hits from the left on this? I noticed a couple of groups, you know, when, when Biden praised Poland for taking in Ukrainian refugees, these groups attacked Biden. Yeah, but look what you're doing at the border. Meanwhile, these numbers haven't looked this good at the border in some time. I think the Biden people are in a position of explaining, <laughs> trying to explain to people who should be their allies, but are very, very mad at them, trying to explain, no, 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 this isn't, we aren't breaking a campaign promise. This isn't exactly what Trump did. Um, and I would say that they're not really getting credit from Republicans either. I mean, no, they're, they they're, won't. I mean that's the problem <laughs> with this issue. They're going to get zero credit from the right, uh, only grief from the left. And I don't know if the independent voters vote on this issue. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great. It's and a, to I'm your not. point, in, in in life or in politics, when you're saying no, 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 wait, you're losing. You, you've already lost yeah. that part of the argument, and uh, the people who are pushing against you, whether on your side or the other side, are moving on. Kimberly, this is to me is a head scratcher. I just don't know how much people vote on this in the in the persuadable middle. In the persuadable middle, I think that you're right. I think they appreciate how difficult this is, how complicated mm -hmm. it is, and they're not always sure exactly what the right thing to do. This they don't want chaos. They don't want chaos. And they don't want cages. That's but right. The yes. thing is that there is this, this sliver of space for bipartisan agreement. Everybody wants more border security. So you right. would think that both sides would come together and say, hey, yeah. let's notch this win. But that's a non-starter for them at this All point. Right. And what's a non-starter is me starting another conversation. I got to go. <laughs> Tamara, Kimberly, and Doug, thank you. Thank you all for being with us this hour.